Welcome to Church with Riverside Online. It's a good day to join us as we are starting a new series that is about building a resilient faith with tools for tough times. It's going to equip and enable us to build on our faith journey. If you are new to Riverside Community Church, we would love to connect with you and answer any questions that you may have. So please follow the prompt on our website and we can be in touch. After five months of lockdown, like many out there, you may be experiencing some new financial difficulties. Please let us know of your needs via our website so we can discreetly help you where possible. For now, let's listen to what God has to say to us in today's message. One of the interesting things that has happened during this season of COVID-19 is how we've become comfortable with words and phrases that we never really used to use so much or how we've developed new words and phrases and ideas. Let me give you a few examples. So unless you've been working in mining or construction, most of you never knew what PPE was and yet now it is such a natural part of our vocabulary. And words like self-isolation or quarantine, we use those words as if we've been using them all the time. And, you know, there's a phrase called flattening the curve. Now, a year ago, flattening the curve had more to do with flattening that curve than infection rates. Something else that has happened is we take two words and we put them together to make a new word. And so, for example, many of you are struggling with Zoom fatigue. Now, a year ago, you never even knew what Zoom was. Now you use it so much, it's wearing you out. And then we've got one of my favorite words, the Corona Coaster. Just trying to describe this um, up and down experience of news and bad news and hopes and dreams and really feeling like the wild ride of a roller coaster. Now, because we're in a brand new reality, we're needing new phrases and new ideas just to help us cope with what's going on. Um, Some of them have a bit of a humorous twist to them, which becomes like much needed social glue. One of my favorite funny ones is the Coronapocalypse. Just trying to describe the sense of, you know, is this the end of the world as we know it? But these words and phrases, and especially those with a bit of a humorous side to them, have become so valuable to us. In fact, we've needed some of this light-heartedness in the midst of this difficulty. Because in this season, businesses have closed. Maybe your business has closed. Or maybe you've had to let people go. Or, Or maybe you've experienced some serious health issues. Or maybe you know someone who's had a tough season with the coronavirus or maybe even lost their lives. And so we need these words to help us navigate and communicate this difficult season. Now, difficult times are not a new thing. But this is one of the first times, at least in recent history, that it seems as if the whole planet is going through a difficult season. And so that's why we're doing this series. And just like new words and new phrases are like tools that help us come to grips with what's going on and and help us navigate the season and help us communicate in the middle of the season. So we also as Christians need 
tools to equip us and to uh, uh, strengthen us to have a resilient faith during the season. And so what we want to do during this uh, new preaching series is to give you a new tool every single week. And every week as we give you this tool, if used properly, it is going to become something that equips you and encourages you and strengthens you and gives you something to hold on to, to help you take one more step during the season. Now today's tool is less of a faith hack or a tip or a trick. It has more to do with how we think. So it is a tool of the mind. And specifically I'm thinking about certain thoughts that may be quite background for many of you. Maybe they're not background for all of you, but these are thoughts that are possibly existing in the back of our minds that if we don't know how to deal with them, or if we don't deal with them head on, they could be devastating for our faith during this difficult season. So to illustrate where I'm going with this, I want you to think back to the last time you were hurt. Maybe you were physically hurt, or emotionally hurt, or something went wrong in a relationship, or maybe you were just super stressed. But as you think back to that moment, I want you to think about how alone you felt. Not how alone you were, but how alone you felt. You see, some people, when they're hurt, they actually want to embrace that aloneness. They actually want people to leave them alone in those moments. Whereas as other people don't want to feel that aloneness. But my point is this. During heightened times of pain and stress and difficulty, there is an emotion that comes up, which may or may not be true, but it is the feeling and the heightened awareness of feeling alone. And my point is this, if we as human beings are somehow hardwired that when we go through tough times and when we go through pain to start believing that maybe I'm alone in this, no one else knows what I'm going through, no one can identify with me. And again, that may or may not be true, that emotion is there. And if we as humans are hardwired to respond that way to pain, can you see how it can become such a small step for us to believe that because I'm going through this season, because I'm going through pain, because I'm going through loss, because I'm grieving, because this has been such an upward struggle for me, that must mean that I am alone and that God has left me alone. And maybe for some people that actually means that God doesn't exist. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ out there, maybe that becomes proof that God does not exist. Now, the line of thinking that goes along with that is this. A good and powerful God would not let this happen, but this is happening Therefore, a good and powerful God does not exist. And so wherever you are or whoever you are, these thoughts may become very real thoughts to you. 
And maybe it's not you. Maybe it's people in your life who have asked you these questions. Maybe it's your family or your kids or your parents or your neighbors or your colleagues who are struggling with these questions. Or maybe because you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this is enough reason to not even consider faith. And so regardless of who you are, as you wrestle with these questions, the first thing I want to tell you is that you're not alone in this. You're not alone. And by that, I don't just mean there are other people wrestling with these questions, which they are. But as we look at scripture, we see some of these people that we would call Bible heroes and heroes of faith wrestling with exactly the same thoughts. And so if we look at Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 13, the prophet Habakkuk, he was looking around him at some of the violence and injustice in the nation around him. And he says this, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Then we get David, the man after God's own heart. And and surely David must have just been swimming and bathing in God's presence and goodness all the time, right? Don't we get all those encouraging verses from the Psalms? Well, here's what David says in Psalm 10 verses 1. He says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then David says in another psalm, and maybe these words sound familiar. He says in Psalm 22, verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if those words sound familiar to you, it's because when Jesus was on the cross and when he was going through anguish and pain and suffering, he quoted those words where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And my point is this. Here we see the biblical authors wrestling with the same questions you wrestle with. Having the same sense of abandonment during these times. And so if that's what you're feeling, and if possibly that's what you're believing, we want to give you some tools to help you navigate these thoughts. So just to let you know, the next five minutes, you're going to need to put your thinking caps on. And so if you're at home doing church online in your jammies and your coffee hasn't really adjusted your personality yet, I I sympathize. But I'm going to ask you to come along with me because this is so important. The first thing you've got to ask yourself is, how do we get to call anything evil? How do we get to call bad things evil? And if I've got, I've got a standard by which I call evil things evil, where did I get that standard from? So maybe you respond by saying, well, Stephen, that's obvious. Obviously, we know that viruses that kill people and people that kill people are evil. Obviously, we know that. Everybody knows that when there's something that brings about human harm and suffering and even natural harm and suffering. Obviously, everybody knows that that is bad and that that is evil. So my first question back to you is this. How is it that it is so obvious How is it that everybody knows? Because I would actually tend to agree with you that there is a sense that we know somehow that evil is evil. But where did that come from? Where does that standard come from? Because somehow it's actually in us from when we're born. 
To all you parents out there, I don't know if you've ever had a few kids and their friends around and you've had to divide up a box of Smarties among some three-year-olds. Now, they're three-year-olds, but they're like chartered accountants in that moment. They see the Smarties going into the three little jars or the three little boxes, man, and they know when one kid has one Smartie more than the other. And what do they respond with? They respond by saying, that's not fair. Or maybe you've been in a situation where you get on the highway like my wife and I did the other day. We get on the highway and immediately it's too late to turn around. But there's some hectic traffic coming our way. Traffic jam of about 20 minutes. So you breathe deeply. You kind of, Lord, just help me get through this. I'm just going to be patient. Then what happens? Just see a car behind you, put on his left indicator and happily, conscience-free, go down the emergency lane. And what is your response? That's not fair. And so where does the sense that we immediately, whether we're three or 33, we know what is fair and what is not fair. Where did that come from? When we say viruses and things that bring about poverty and destruction are not fair or are wrong, where did that come from? Now, many people are wrestling with this question, not just Christians and people of faith. And so one of the ways that people try and explain this innate sense of what is good and what is bad is by taking God off the table. And so many would say, well, God's got nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with nature. In other words, this innate sense of right and wrong and what is evil comes through to us through natural mechanisms and processes. And so what often happens is we point out to the natural world that we see a sense of good and bad in the natural world. And often when animals are emulating human beings and, you know, living in a way that we would say, oh, we would also, you know, value that in humanity. We see, you know, a mother elephant nurturing its baby. Or we just look at cute puppies and rainbows and dolphins and we say, oh, you see, it comes from the natural world. And I kind of get that. But then we get some things that maybe trouble our mind, right? And get us out of the, you know, dancing through daisy fields and singing Kumbaya mentality. Because you get, for example, the female black widow spider. And she eats her husband after copulating. And then you get chimpanzees that eat their enemies. And then you get orcas that literally torture porpoises for fun or we get many bird species that if there's two babies coming up in a nest the minute one is bigger and stronger than the other he picks his sibling to death and so i would say well when we say our innate sense of what is right and wrong comes from nature i'm saying well which part of nature which corner of the natural world are we appealing to Because if we're recognizing that, man, there are some things in the natural world that are okay for them, but are not okay for us. What you are doing when you say what's okay for orcas is not okay for humans. What is okay for chimps is not okay for humans. You are not looking to the natural world for a sense of right and wrong. You are imposing a sense of right and wrong upon the natural world, which means... This evaluation of what is right and wrong is coming from outside of the natural world. You see, Darwin, 
he famously said, he said that nature is red in tooth and claw, which means the morality of the natural world is at the end of the day, violence and death. Violence and death is what got us here. And then you get Hitler, who leaned on Darwin when he said, if nature can do it, we can do it. And, and if that's where we get our morality from, and if that repulses you, which it should, suddenly you realize that the natural world doesn't provide us with the framework for us to call anything good or bad. You see, when viruses just do what viruses do, that's nature doing what nature does. And while it may, may, may make you feel uncomfortable, you cannot call it evil. And therefore, when we take God off the table, there is nothing that we're going through that we can rightly call wrong or bad or evil. And so for the rest of our message, let's put God back on the table. And we've already seen that though we are going through a tough time, we've seen that that doesn't mean we can eliminate God. And so, well, where is God then? Well, what is God doing in our lives in the middle of the season? And I want to give you three thoughts to become tools to help you navigate this difficult season, but become more aware of where God is and what he is doing in your life. And my first thought is this. God is right there with you. God is right there with you. Now, as you hear those words, or as I hear those words, I always try and become aware of my imagination, what goes on in the back of my mind, as I hear words that are possibly even prone to cliché. And so as I say those words, here you are going through a difficult season, and here's me saying, God is right there with you. What kind of comes up in your mind? Let's maybe help you navigate that thought. I want to give you a scenario. And here's the scenario. The scenario is you. You are in the jungle and you need to survive, right? You've got very little resources with you. You need to survive and you need to try and get out. And so you have this moment. Again, just this sounds crazy, but use your imagination. You have this moment where you wish. Man, I just wish there was someone who could be with me and help me get out of here. Okay, so that's the scenario. Now I'm going to paint scenario A and scenario B. Scenario A is this. You have this moment of wishing that someone was there with you and this bright light appears. And this person ap appears in this bright light and they're glowing and they're wise and they're full of gentleness and peace. And you're like, oh, thank you. I'm so glad that you've arrived to help me. And so you start navigating the mud and you start navigating hunger. And then you start to realize, well, this person isn't really with me. They're physically here, but, you know, they're still white. They've still got this like aura of peace and joy. Um, and every time I say, well, aren't you going to help me? Their response is, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. So that's scenario A, because I think for some of us, when I say God is there with, with you, 
I think what you hear is, well, here I am in the muck and the mire and the difficulty and the tragedy of my life and I'm suffering. And you, Stephen, tell me that God is here with me, but it's like he's here, but he's untouched by what's going on. That's scenario A. Scenario B is this. You have this wish moment where this person appears, but then the glow disappears and you start to realize this person who's arrived is just like me. And so they come alongside with alongside you and you start to get into the mud, but they get into the mud with you. You start to look for food, but they're looking for food with you. And, and you start to realize they've got some skills and knowledge that you don't have. And, and maybe they help you find food. But there are other times where you don't find food, but they are right there being hungry with you. And then you're cold, but they're right there being cold with you. But as you do this day after day after day, you start to realize there's something about this person. There's something this person has that you don't have. They've got a strength. They've got a grace. They've got a perspective. They've got a joy. They've got a peace that you're starting to realize is rubbing off on you. And, and you get to the point where you are more at peace and you have a new perspective and you have more joy, even though you're in the middle of it. They have imparted something to you. And you get to the point where you realize, I would never have gotten to this point of this journey without this person. So when I say that God is there with you, what comes to your mind is that more like scenario A or scenario B. Because I want to argue that when I say God is right there with you, it is more like scenario B. Because when Jesus came into this world, he too went hungry. He too was thirsty. He too was tested and he was tempted. He too was betrayed. He too went homeless. He too experienced incredible physical suffering. In fact, the scriptures say that when we come to God, they say in Hebrews 4 verses 15 to 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are, just as we are. Yet he was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us, to help us in our time of need. You see, this verse is saying we do not have a scenario A God. We have a scenario B God who has experienced what we are going through. Listen to what Isaiah 43 2 says. It says, when you pass through the waters, when you go through a difficult time, I will be with you. David again describes God in Psalm 23 verse 4 when he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. So God is right there with you. The second tool for you to, to think about during this time is that God feels for you. Now maybe someone in your life goes through a tough time and maybe you text them or phone them saying, I feel bad for you. Or maybe you even say, I feel really bad for you. But then what happens is you go back to your life, right? So let me tell you how Jesus responds when he comes across a widow who had lost her son. Now, now just pause on that. A widow, she has already lost her husband. Now she's got one child, one child, the, the, the joy of her life, right? And then this child passes away. 
She's lost everything and is possibly facing poverty because that's what happened to widows in that time. And so Jesus comes across and it says this, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. His heart went out to her. Now, again, maybe you say my heart's going out to you, but I don't know if that sounds a bit clinical. The ESV says that he had compassion on her. Now, that word in the Greek actually describes this emotion at a far deeper level. It actually means that when Jesus saw this woman and what she was going through, he was moved to the deepest parts of his being. In fact, the word literally means he was moved in his bowels. I don't know if you've ever experienced an emotion so intensely that, man, if you had to describe it, you, you are feeling into the deepest parts of your being. And so here we have Jesus seeing a woman broken by her circumstances, broken by her grief and her loss. And what does Jesus do? Does he feel a little bit bad for her? No, he feels her pain to the point where he is moved by compassion in the deepest parts of who he was. So when I say that God feels for you, he sees you. He sees you in your suffering. He sees your pain and your grief and your loss. And he is moved in the deepest parts of who he is because God feels for you. No other religion gives you this, by the way. This is so wonderful, wonderful for us to understand how God relates to us in our struggle. And here's the third thought for you. And the third thought for you is this. God will remove all evil. God will remove all evil. And we know this because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, in his death, Jesus took on himself all the things we hate, all the things we would call evil and sin and suffering he took upon himself. He even surrendered himself by embracing death itself. Then we look at the resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus shows us his victory over what you and I would call evil and suffering and pain and death. And so the death and the resurrection of Jesus show us Jesus' victory over these things. One preacher said it like this. He said that the cross of Jesus shows us that he dealt with past tense, the penalty of sin, Presence tense, he deals with the power of sin, but then future tense, because of past and present, future tense is that God will remove the presence of sin. And so, yes, you are going through a very difficult season. You are going through loss and pain and difficulty and suffering. But when we look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we know that while in this short time on earth, yes, it is a struggle, but God is with me. He is with me. He sees me. He exists. He gives me what I need so that he imparts his own joy and peace and strength to me in the middle of the season. And his emotions are there with me. He is moved by compassion for me. But we also look forward to an eternal future with God, knowing that there will come an eternity where there is no pain and no death and no evil and no suffering. And so I, I don't know where you're at now. I, I don't know what God is highlighting for you. 
But as we get to this part of the message, I really believe we need to pray and really embrace this God who is and embrace this God who is there and embrace this God who cares and is moved by compassion for you and embrace this God who has defeated the power of sin and death and evil and pain. So let us pray. And Father, first of all, I pray for those who feel abandoned by you, those who feel like they are alone, those who've looked around them and have prayed those same prayers that we read that David prayed and that Habakkuk prayed. Just where are you, Lord, and why are you letting me go through this? And for those who have been wrestling with this thought that maybe God is not here, Father, I pray that you would overwhelm them with the sense that you are there, that you are there with them and that you are in it with them. And so, Father God, I pray that you would provide hope and strength and perseverance as you are the high priest who does sympathize with us. And Father God, I pray that we would know your compassion and we would also know, truly know and be transformed by the hope that you give us because of your victory in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that these thoughts can transform the sense of defeat in this time and give us joy and hope and strength and something to enable us to take another step of faith forward. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for logging on today. Please join us again next week for the second message in this helpful series. Have a great week.